Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I am glad, uh, as always, that you're here with us and uh, not asleep still. Um, though some of you might still be in your pajamas. Um, and uh, I'm glad we can go to God's word because in a time that's as confusing as our own, we need to hear God's voice. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us clarity about who we are, about what you have done, and about what we're called to do, uh, to love you more and to love each other better. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, uh, this morning we come to a passage that is... Uh, maybe the closest thing we have to a horror movie version of demon possession in the Bible. Uh, maybe this is a little something like what you think about when you hear the idea of uh, demon possession. But I think a lot of us also sort of expect the Scooby-Doo gang to, to show up in the mystery machine and, uh, and to sort of unmask what's going on here. This isn't what we think it is. Because as uh, Charles Taylor says in his uh, famous book, A Secular Age, we, we are 
we kind of think of ourselves as buffered selves. We are not susceptible to the forces in the universe that are out there, that we are, we think our own thoughts, we determine our own way, our feelings are our own. And even if we might talk about being victims of what others do, that we are still self-determining. We are still under our own control. And, uh, and, you know, whether this is a Tony Robbins seminar or whether it is uh, a Disney movie, this is throughout the way that we think about ourselves is that we are self-contained, that we are buffered from other forces that are outside of us. The Bible tells us something a little bit different. Uh, the Bible tells us that there is more going on unseen than we really realize. That there are other forces at work in us and on us. That doesn't mean we, are, we don't have agency. It doesn't mean we don't have our own thoughts, our own will. But that there is more acting on us than we're ready to admit. And in fact, we see kind of throughout Mark, and especially in the first half of Mark, that Jesus is engaged in a kind of unseen warfare, an unseen battle. It begins way back in chapter 1, immediately after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the desert to confront Satan. A conflict that probably is not seen by anyone else. We're told along the way of, all, of a number of different exorcisms. We've kind of mentioned these along the way in this series in passing, and this is the most uh, el elaborate story we have about an exorcism. And, uh, but we've seen it all the way throughout. And we've talked, and it's helpful to understand, we've talked so far about some of Satan's strategies and his, his kind of main two strategies of lying about God's character and accusing us of our faults. But what we start to see unpacked here is what Satan really intends to accomplish. What we get in this story is the contrast between the kingdom that Satan is trying to bring about and the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in. We see a, a set of contrast uh, in, the, in several different ways. So we see what Satan's kingdom looks like socially. We see what it looks like psychologically, and we see what it has, how it uses power. We'll see what it does socially, what it does psychologically, and how it uses power. But we'll also see, by contrast, what the kingdom of God is like that Jesus is bringing in. So look first at the social effects. Now, Jesus has crossed the Sea of, Gal uh, the sea of Galilee, which is a, a large lake in the northern part of Israel. And the western part of the Sea of Galilee was primarily Jewish. That is, the, that is actually what we call Galilee. It's that region. But the eastern side of it was, uh, was an area called the Gerizines. And kind of the, the eastern side of it and down a little south is, is this area called the Decapolis, uh, 12 city. 12 cities, towns that were there, and that's primarily Gentile territory. So Jesus is crossing into Gentile territory. And any attuned reader at the time is going is to expect that Jesus will probably not have a warm reception. And in fact, the first thing he meets is this demon-possessed man. 
And notice this, he's living among the tombs. In verse, verses 2 and 3. Now, first, to, to the Jewish disciples, of course, this is revolting. This is uh, the pinnacle of being unclean ceremonially is to, to be around dead things. But nobody likes anybody to be around dead things. This is where decay and disease is. This man is driven out then from the world, the social world that he had lived in, and he's living there. And again, whether he's been pushed out, whether he has chosen to do that is all entirely unclear, but he is living among the dead. And he's crying out all the time. Did you notice this in verse 5? You know, day and night, he's crying out in the hills. And it's worth stopping to think about a world in which there's almost no noise pollution. And you live in this town, and there's a man out crying out in the middle of the night. That must have been disturbing, to say the least. Adrian and I, when we were in seminary, uh, Gordon Conwell had a pretty large campus that was in a semi-rural area, and we lived on an apartment on campus, and there were a lot of coyotes that lived, there were wild coyotes that were around in the area. And I remember the first time I heard them with our window open, and it sounds like somebody was being murdered outside your window. And it was, <laughs> I woke up, you know, sat straight up in bed. I was like, what is that? And it was, it was frightening. And, I mean, just imagine that you know who it is that's crying out in the middle of the night. And if that's not enough, you see what happens to these pigs. And this is, this is a really instructive moment. Uh, this is verses 11 to 13. Uh, Jesus comes and drives this, you know, this legion of, of uh, demons out and sends them into the pigs. Now, they asked to do this. There's a lot of debate needless to say, which you probably would guess, uh, about why Jesus does this, because we're not really told. Now, in Matthew's parallel account of this, they say it's not our time yet. They, they, they beg Jesus not to punish them because it's not their time yet. So it, it may, there may be a sense in which Jesus hasn't come to fully d- deal with the demons, and so he simply pushes them out someplace else. But what is really instructive and, and certainly clear is that when the demons go to the pigs, what they do to that community, they destroy it. You see, what they're at work doing amongst humans when they go to, the, to a different animal with, without its own will in the same way, they completely destroy it. The whole herd. All of this is to say you know, that, that Satan's goal, the goal of his kingdom is to rip apart the social fabric. It is to destroy communities. That is his goal. Maybe, I, you know, I don't know, maybe that, what that sounds like to you in theory, but of course, under the strain of a pandemic, I think we know a little bit about what it means to not have community to not really uh, be around each other. Now, we're, again, we're trying to gather together in ways that we can uh, and to care for each other in ways that we can, but we know what it feels like to be isolated. You know, and at its worst, of course, what this also looks like is terrorizing of neighbors. 
being cut off from normal life and care of others. And you can think of really obvious examples of this. We, our minds, when we think of great evils in the world, of course, always go to people like Hitler and Stalin. And of course, this is true, right? Uh, they exploited divisions. They exploited uh, animosities that were already there. Uh, but there are there are a whole, there are a whole host of ways in which uh, this goes on in less obvious ways in our own society. If you read about modern day slavery, for example, there are uh, you know tens of millions of people that are enslaved in the world. And you read much of this literature, and you know a lot of this goes on, as it were, in plain sight. Uh, People are oppressed and exploited, cut off from those that they trust uh, and used. It goes on in a lot of less obvious ways uh, that we are cut off from one another. In our own day of divisive politics, we might ask, what is going on? Uh, that, we're, that, that we are told to hate one another. Uh, to speak so poorly, to denigrate one another uh, because of our disagreements. You might wonder what sort of power is at work. But the contrast to this is what Jesus does with this man at the end. Do you notice this? He, he wants to go with Jesus, and uh, that makes total sense, I think. Of course he wants to be with Jesus. Look what Jesus just did for him. He wants to be there. He wants to be around him. And Jesus sends him back to his friends. Jesus starts to restore his relationships to what is healthy and whole. This is what Jesus does. This is what God's kingdom is like. Rather than ripping people apart, it knits us back together. Now, I know as soon as we talk about, you know, these different things, we think about, well, you know, sometimes telling the truth is painful and difficult. Yes, absolutely. That is hard. Look, in the church, we should know this better than anybody, especially in the Protestant church. We have all kinds of divisions, right? And we're Presbyterians, after all. And uh, we've argued about lots of different things and had our divisions about all these different things. I'm not saying the church is above any of that. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for truth-telling. In fact, truth-telling is part of what makes for a healthy relationship. But what I'm saying is what is pursued in the kingdom of God is healthy, re-knit relationships. It may be that in the sinfulness of our lives and the difficulties of understanding one another, that process will be incomplete this side of eternity. But that is the goal. That is what Jesus is bringing in. And in fact, that is what he's working in his church. Jesus is already doing here what he tells the disciples to do after his ascension. To build the church. He's sending this guy out to his community among the Gentiles, outside of Israel, to build a community around what he has done. The church is beginning here. And that is what the church is called to be. That's why the church, to be faithful, has to be a cross-cultural kind of ministry. Crossing our political divides, our racial, ethnic divides, our economic divides. Because the church, the kingdom of God, is re-knitting 
healthy relationships. That is what God's social vision is for us. That is what he will bring about one day. Completely. Where the world around us is built around animosities, and in fact, the ties that are bound together often are bound together by our disdain for those that are on the other side. The Bible teaches us instead to love our enemies. And those who mistreat us to give them even more. God is reconciling the world, not only to himself, but he is rec- he's reconciling humanity in his kingdom. So we see that the kingdom of Satan is about social destruction, whereas the kingdom of God is about social reconciliation. So there's this kind of social component to both kingdoms. But there's also a, there is also a psychological component. This man is wandering around naked. Did you notice that? Uh, we're not told that at first, but in verse 15, we're, we're told that he's clothed. Evidently, he wasn't when Jesus showed up, which certainly makes it all that much more disturbing an image uh, when Jesus is, lands on the shore. And this guy comes running out of them. He's got no clothes on. What is he doing? And notice this in verse 5. As he's crying out day and night in the hills, he's cutting himself. And what a horrific image. And he's crying out. If you've been around those who are not well, you know, so often a feature of a number of different psychological disorders is that people talk to themselves. And they're calling out, I mean, this guy's not well. This is the self-destructive side of the kingdom of Satan. Satan's kingdom not only wants to tear our social bonds apart, but wants, us to, eat us, wants to eat us up from the inside. And those are interconnected. Those, as those bonds erode to others, so too does our grounding in who we, are, who we are. And look, this should not be a surprise to us because we are a problem to ourselves. Having spent a decade in campus ministry, I don't know how many conversations I had with people about eating disorders, about addictive behaviors. Uh, I mean, even specifically about cutting themselves. And these are things that are not, they're treated as sort of uncommon. That is to say, it's not talked about a lot. But the reality is they're, they're very common. I mean, those who are 12 to 25, about over half of women have some form of eating disorder. That's enormous. And it's a third of the men in that category. And while some of that does pass, it's still estimated that one in ten Americans struggle with it. Even into adulthood. I mean, another disturbing reality is that over the last two decades, the suicide rates have climbed by 35%. And that rate has increased over every age category. 
it, it can hard, in fact, I mean, it is becoming such an epidemic uh, on college campuses that most counseling, uh, most counseling centers on college campuses are completely overrun. They don't know, they, they can't even deal with the volume of issues that they're, that they face. Uh, many of them severe, many of them uh, uh, even driving towards suicide. We are a problem to ourselves. And this is the stuff of Satan's kingdom. This is what we see so clearly, though not maybe so tangibly in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, we see it all over the place. And even when we're not driven to something as severe as those things I've been talking about, that have such obvious uh, detrimental effects on our health and even our life. How much are we eaten out by guilt and shame? Remember that when we talked about Satan's strategies of lying about God's character and about accusing us? These are the tactics of Satan, and he's preying on our own sense of guilt and shame. That is what he does. But by contrast, Jesus brings this man back to his senses. In verse 15, they, when the people show up, what do they see? This guy that had been naked, crying out, cutting himself, is calm. Seated at Jesus' feet. I mean, no wonder they're afraid, right? I mean, they must be wondering, is this some sort of ruse, right? Like, is this, like... Is he suckering us into a dangerous situation? But the reality is he's been restored. His view of himself has changed. And this is, in fact, what we see all throughout the New Testament is fundamentally our own understanding of our guilt and our shame changes with Jesus. Because whatever it is you feel guilty about, it is not the last word about you. And if it's your sin... It is not the last word of what you've done. If it is what someone else has done to you that you're trying to sort out, it is not the last word about you. Because the last word about you is that God loves you and he gave himself, he gave his son on your behalf. That that guilt and shame does not rule you. So I want to be quite clear about something here. I'm not saying that all psychological problems are demon possession. Certainly not saying that. I'm also not saying that there is a simple cure that you just need a little more Bible study and all your psychological problems will go away. Instead, what I'm saying, though, is that Satan loves to prey on our frail health. You may, you may, need, you may need counseling. You may need therapy. You may need even kind of medical interventions it may be a very complex thing going on, but at root, what the Bible offers you, what you can come back to over and over and over again, is that your guilt and shame are not the last word about who you are. And that you are freed to own what you need to own, to let go of what you need to let go of, and to recognize that you are loved so deeply 
that God would even enter into this mess to bring you out of it, to make you whole and healthy. So where Satan's kingdom is self-destructive, Jesus gives you an indestructible self. Jesus gives you an identity that is unshakable. Jesus gives you an identity that gives you wholeness, life, holiness even. And the, and the last dynamic that's important to see is how power is used. Notice this, when Jesus shows up and he meets this demoniac, he is powerful. It's a, whole, it's a vision of raw power. This is a guy that they're cha- they've chained up, and that doesn't matter. He can simply snap these chains. None of that can hold him. And when Jesus asks who this demon is, what is its identity, he really creepily answers that we are legion, switches to the third person. Uh, it, it, it is this creepy moment. In fact, there's, there's kind of an interesting back and forth. Whenever the demons speak, they speak in plural, even though throughout the, the other narrative it's used uh, in the singular to talk about the man. But the demons, in other words, it's really important to understand that they are a legion. That is a military term. For a, it's not a precise number, but a couple of thousand. Again, the idea of spiritual warfare is right here, staring us in the face. That as Jesus has passed over into Gentile territory, he's, he's passing over into territory that is held strongly by Satan by the demonic forces of the world. And they only barter in raw power. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this is Satan's goal, right? Is to challenge God and to undo his work. Milton in Paradise Lost has Satan say, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Or, if you prefer, in Harry Potter... The first moment that he meets Voldemort, the bad guy, Voldemort tells him, there is no good and evil, there is only power and those too weak to seek it. Satan's kingdom, in other words, preys on our own desire to dominate others. What Augustine called the libido dominandi, the the desire to desire to rule over others, to control them. And make no mistake, that is our, that is what characterizes our whole language about power. It's really obvious, of course, in the prophets of power over the last two centuries, people like Nietzsche and Foucault, but it is, it boils down to the way that we talk about politics. That is, you either have power or you're trying to take it from somebody else. It is the way that we talk about our work environments. It is the way that we talk about the church sometimes. It's the way that we talk about all of our relationships. That what, what Satan's kingdom is about, what it is preying upon, is a desire to dominate others. That's what Satan wants for himself. That's, how the, that's the currency of his kingdom. But notice what Jesus does instead. 
Jesus brings this man peace. Jesus frees him. Jesus releases him from that power that is dominating over him. And of course we know that Jesus will invert all the expectations of power. Jesus will take the worst this world has to offer, let himself be destroyed, and take his life back up again. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not, it doesn't operate on the same terms of power as the rest of the world. Jesus isn't power hungry, partly because Jesus doesn't need to be power hungry, but partly because he recognizes that the great weakness of the kingdom of Satan, the great foolishness of the kingdom of Satan, is to think that power is only a thing that you can hoard for yourself. But the way that God's kingdom works, the way that it operates in through and in the life of Jesus is self-giving love. That there is nothing more powerful than that. When Jesus gives himself, he is exercising the most power because that is the character of God. That is the kind of kingdom that he is bringing in. So while Satan's kingdom is power hungry, Jesus' kingdom is power generous. He wants to empower and care for others. It is worth reminding ourselves that in Colossians 1, Paul says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And maybe, again, this, this talk about demons and all this sort of thing seems so weird to you, but look around the world that we live in and ask yourself, does it not look a lot like that? When at the end of First John, the apostle says that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, does it not look like that kind of world? But the reason, and this is what John says elsewhere, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan's kingdom cannot stand. It is built on the foolish premise that he can match God's power, that he can hold a kingdom together that he is ripping apart at the seams, that he can rule over others that he is eating out from the inside, But the way of God's kingdom is to restore us to happiness and holiness in ourselves, to understand what it really means to know God and be loved by God, with one another to understand how big the love of God really is, that it can bind us up, that it can teach us even to love our enemies. And it teaches us to use what we have, not for ourselves, but for others. This is the kingdom of God. This is what, if you believe in Jesus, what you have been brought into. And in a sin-sick world, in a world that the evil one dominates, the kingdom of God is a breath of fresh air. Let's pray that it would be at work in us, that we would be changed more and more to live that out for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Father, we know that 
though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that you have broken his power. Because sin and death have no claim on us. So we pray that you would heal the way we see ourselves, that we would be transformed, that we would know that our guilt and our shame is not the last word about us. We pray that you would knit us together in love for one another, for the world, and that we would use what we have to bless others. We would not hoard what we have, but that we would give sacrificially, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.